0: These next uh, four to six weeks, particularly on the domestic front, may not even reach $100 million at the box office. And for perspective, we saw the first five weeks of this restart beginning in late August, generate about $85 million. Even though we never expected things to get back to normal anytime soon, we're progressing a little bit more, perhaps safe to say a lot more slowly than, than was really hoped for.
1: This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Russ Fisher, the Editorial Director of the Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content to movie theaters. And this week I'm joined by Rebecca Pauley, the Deputy Editor of Box Office Pro, and Sean Robbins, the Chief Analyst at Box Office Pro. Now, before we begin, we are asking listeners to take part in the Box Office Podcast survey. We would just want to get a sense of how you're listening to the podcast, what it does for you, your likes, your dislikes. The Box Office Podcast survey is listed in this episode's description. It's also on our website at boxofficepro.com slash podcast. Take a look if you have a moment. It'll just take a couple of seconds of your time and it will help us further develop the podcast to suit all of our listeners' needs. Now, as we record this episode. We're coming out of the fourth weekend of Tenant's release in the United States. So I want to begin by hitting up our wonderful analyst Sean to see how Tenant is doing and uh, you know where we're at with the movie that was previously seen as one of the major tent poles of the year. Is that still what tenant's looking like at this hmm. point?
0: Well, you know, everything's relative. Uh, it's, it's the only tentpole out right now. So I guess for lack of any other options, yeah, this week was, was kind of continuing that trend. We've, we've really seen in its first few weeks of release, it's holding well. It it was down about 26% according to Warner brothers domestically this weekend. And that pushed it over 40 million domestically, which is certainly very far from tentpole numbers during normal times. Uh, but it is the top grossing movie in the United States in the last six months. So, you know, take that for what it is. It's, it's still very predominantly an overseas play, and it reached about 283 million over the weekend. So it should reach about 300 by the end of this coming frame. And from there, it's, it's still seeing strongholds in Japan, France and Germany it's just really kind of all about that long game at this point. And I would say maybe it has a shot to eventually get close to 400 by the end of its run, but everything is is really dependent on on where theaters are at in a couple of months.
1: And that 20% drop is not outrageous. I mean, that's the sort of thing we would expect to see. Actually, for uh, the fourth weekend of a movie like this, you'd almost expect a drop of even more than 20%. But when we're talking about attendance numbers that we are because of coronavirus, it's a lot more complicated.
0: Absolutely. That's just our reality at this point. And I think that'll that'll really be a factor for whatever the next few movies coming up for release are and eventually that next big title, whatever that's going to be.
2: Speaking of uh, the next few movies that are going to come out, whatever they are... Sean, of course, uh, that's our big, uh, our big news story of the last few days. We had uh, another wonderful announcement from Disney that they are moving a whole bunch of release dates. These titles that were moved, uh, you know, are across the Disney Marvel 20th Century Searchlight Pictures brand. Uh, We have Black Widow, which was, of course, uh, previously going to come out on November 6th, has now moved to May of next year. Death on the Nile, which was supposed to come out uh, in just a couple weeks on October 23rd, now is hitting us in December of this year. And yeah, just uh, West Side Story was supposed to come out in December. Now it's coming out of December next year. The King's Man actually uh, came up by two weeks in next February. What does this mean both for the reality of box office over you know the october november corridor and looking more long term
0: right it's a tough spot uh you know i think a few weeks ago uh, when we started talking about tenant coming out the hope was that this was the the trend the start of a trend of good news and Unfortunately it's going to take longer to get to that point, I think, at least on a steady basis. What we're looking at a global market that is dependent largely on one highly cerebral blockbuster, and that's that's a tough spot because it's theaters were hoping to have four quadrant appealing movies. If not by now, then very soon, by October and, and certainly by November. With Black Widow's delay, that now means that No Time to Die and Pixar's soul currently in Tentatively, everything is tentative these days, but currently dated for November 20th, right before Thanksgiving in in the States, are the next uh, target big releases. So in general, what that means is these next uh, four to six weeks, particularly on the domestic front, may not even reach $100 million at the box office. It's possible that some specialty titles and the fewer counter-programming releases that are still scheduled uh, could add up and maybe overperform a little bit, but we're not talking about anything that will be significant in a major way. Uh, And for perspective, we saw the first five weeks of this restart beginning in late August, generate about $85 million in North America. And that was kind of expected to be the slowest part of this restart. And even though we never expected things to get back to normal anytime soon, we're progressing a little bit more, perhaps safe to say a lot more slowly than than was really hoped for.
1: We're going into a position here where we've got really virtually nothing major coming out now until the middle of November. And then suddenly there's four titles because we go from nothing to suddenly we get No Time to Die, Soul, Universal's horror comedy Freaky, and The Crudes 2, you know, family animated uh, sequel. What does that do for that Thanksgiving week schedule, Sean, like where suddenly there's now... We're going from no product to almost kind of a glut
0: of product. It's a great point to bring up. And I think that that's certainly one reason that I feel was playing into Disney's decision to just get black widow out of this year, because, you know, we've all talked about on the podcast before that once we hit that November, December corridor, there were a lot of these movies. So now we're down one (laughs) black widow's not there anymore, but soul and James Bond, you know, there, there's I think there there's an argument where you can say, OK, these are two films that won't really have an audience crossover. If if things are looking better by then, maybe it's possible that they can coexist as they normally would, albeit under different terms and different circumstances. And that's what needs to happen on some level. I mean, the, I think one of the lessons to, to take away from Tendant is the fact that it was not supported by any other kind of big family movie in the market Major cities weren't open yet. It's 2020. It wouldn't be surprising to see something else be delayed from from November and December. We still have Wonder Woman and Dune, Free Guy, uh, scheduled for December. So, you know, like to your point, there is still a glut there. It's slowly thinning out. And you know, we're kind of seeing those movies push into 2021. But now we're at the point where 2021 is so jam-packed we're now kind of looking at, okay, so what can go from 21 to 22? I think that's where we're we're really looking at this long term now, because it just seems realistic that we will see more of those November, December titles shift around in some way.
2: I mean, you say, you know, Black Widow kind of, they, they got that out of, of 2020. At the same time, Death on the Nile, uh, which was going to be October, has now been moved into December. You know, I, I always kind of thought, of that film, you know, it it would be maybe a more adult skewing bit of counter programming against maybe a lot more action sci fi type titles. What do you think the potential is now for Death on the Nile now that it's moved right smack dab into the middle of all these other films coming out in December? It's kind of moved into maybe potentially a, a better position where it's a nice, you know, more counter programming as opposed to it being like the only thing there.
0: Right. Yeah, no, I completely agree. It's, it's certainly a movie. I mean, look at the, the main demographic for the last film, uh, Orient Express was predominantly older adults. And I think especially fans of Agatha Christie are probably over the age of 40 or 50. And that's kind of the audience that we've always expected to be the last to come back to theaters. Because in many ways, they are the most susceptible to coronavirus. And that's, that's kind of been the narrative of, of this year. So it's always been interesting that that movie in particular has remained a stalwart on the 2020 calendar. Not to say that it doesn't have some, some younger appeal. I mean, it has this gigantic ensemble cast that I think appeals to a lot of people. But those novels in particular are most well-known among a certain generation. So it is interesting that that's in December now. And again, I think Disney, every studio is looking at this from the perspective of we can't exactly predict how things are going to look in two months, but we're not going to completely abandon the schedule. That's been one of the biggest advantages to Disney's strategies this year. And probably the most praised aspect is that they haven't just completely abandoned the year. They realize their importance in dating these films and th- they and Warner Brothers really have the most say in in what's going to come out theatrically at this point over the next four to six months. So, you know, they're, they're looking at this and saying, OK, if we can open it, we'll open it. If we can't open it by then, we're going to do our best to open it theatrically. It'll just be later.
2: Or in the case of The Empty Man earlier, that was moved from December forward to October 23rd, right? Yeah. Even though I don't think we've seen any marketing for it yet. Correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong.
1: Nothing.
0: Not that I know of. Nothing.
1: Yeah. Not that I know of. And similarly, there there had been no real marketing for West Side Story. And that's gotta be a movie that Spielberg sees as a big potential awards play. And with the awards being in flux and uncertain for twenty twenty one, to me it seems to make a lot of sense that they would push West Side Story into Christmas of next year, where then in you know, the awards that take place in early twenty two, it can potentially have a big presence.
2: And you give what and you give Death on the Nile, it's its date because it's a very exactly. similar kind of yeah. uh, kind of feel kind of demo. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So uh, you you know what's uh, I hate to frame anything this year in terms of positive and negative because I think that's a reductive way of looking at it and I think that we don't know <laughs> yet how things are, are going to shake out for sure but you know looking at looking at the the release date change information that we got from Disney is, is there anything hopeful here? Is there anything optimistic? I mean, I know we're we're all very glad that it looks like Soul is sticking. They, they could have pushed that to Disney+, Plus and instead it does look like we are getting a nice big budget Pixar family title coming out in November. So <laughs> thank goodness for that.
0: Yeah, the positive aspect here is, uh, as we touched on Soul, as you touched on, Soul is still there. They didn't push that off to Disney+. Plus and we... I've seen this domino effect that we keep talking about with the Marvel titles. There was a, there were a lot of rumors that Black Widow could go to Disney plus and they didn't, they, they pushed it off another half of a year, which is really significant because when you consider everything that Marvel has lined up and this theorizing, we've, we've heard from everybody on the internet from the media that they would eventually have to put something on streaming just to keep their Marvel timelines in order. They haven't done that yet. They've pushed all their shows back. They've pushed all their films back. Uh, so to me, like you said, it's hard to reduce all of this to positive and negative. But if I'm looking at this from, from that standpoint of I run a theater and I don't want to see all of these cash cows go away on a permanent basis, Disney is fulfilling that they are. They're continuing to push back as far as they have to, to make sure that they, they get that cinematic play out there. And, you know, it's not the greatest news that we're now talking about a full year delay on black widow to next May, but uh, that, that really is probably the best glass-half-full way to look at it right now.
1: So, Sean, without major titles to play in the next six weeks, we are seeing some chains rely on event programming. One of the first big titles to come out uh, was the BTS movie, uh, the concert film and uh, behind-the-scenes confessional, so-called. Uh, about the globally massive South Korean boy band BTS. Uh, how did that do? Uh, what sort of information do we have about uh, the performance of uh, the BTS movie?
0: So the early numbers that we've seen, and we're still waiting confirmation from directly from the studio, but we've we've heard from rival studios on a pretty reliable basis that the film earned around $1 million in its opening weekend, which it's kind of an interesting, I think, starting point for what event cinema can mean to exhibition in the coming months, especially now that we know that all these these tentpole titles won't be there until the holiday season at the earliest. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, what other titles like this, some fathom events titles we're starting to see. I think a few more of those pop up on the schedule. Event cinema in general is something that could really be an anchor for a lot of exhibitors uh, throughout the fall, especially based on. The fact that I don't really feel like this film had a ton of marketing. I'm sure its fan base was certainly well aware of it. But with a little bit more push, I could see other specialty titles like this uh, performing fairly well in in the weeks to come.
2: And as a reminder, uh, we would love to hear from our listeners on this survey that, uh, that we have out now. Uh, you can find it in the description of this episode or at boxofficepro.com slash podcast. Um, we'd love to hear from you on, on what you want to hear more of, whether that's box office forecasting and interviews with cinemas and exhibitors or us talking about weird horror movies that we like or something else or none of the above please uh, go to the survey and let us know. It'll just take a few seconds. Uh, So in the midst of potentially uh, uncertain or negative news surrounding shifting release dates, uh, it feels good that our main story on this week's episode is something positive. Founded in 2013 by Anthony and Tian Andrews, We Are Parable builds events and experiences around Black cinema, bringing special screenings of both newer and classic films, uh, like Coming to America and Black Panther, to cinemas in the UK. They create these really uh, special, uh, unique events that are more than just inviting people to come to a movie theater to watch a movie. Uh, After a pause in operations for... Obvious reasons. On September 8th, We Are Parable returned with the screening at the Rio Cinema in London of Rocks, which is a buzzed about independent film directed by Sarah Gavron. Uh, We Are Parable is a company that's uh, been on our radar for a while, it's a company that we've wanted to speak about for a while. Uh, but with them being able to host their first in-person event after the COVID shutdown in the UK, uh, it was really a, a perfect excuse for us to call up Anthony Andrews and talk to him about the genesis of of We Are a Parable, their philosophy as a company towards putting on these events and connecting with moviegoers, uh, and some really interesting research that they did surrounding customer confidence uh, about coming back to cinemas. So, Anthony, I'd like to start back with a look at your first event in 2013, a screening of Coming to America. Now, in 2020, granted, it's a very different time, but speaking to other exhibitors, uh, what we on the podcast are seeing is that there's often a struggle to get people in to see older films that they can rent online for a few bucks, you know, especially now when repertory content is... All people have to screen, basically, Mm. in in some cases. So starting from that very first screening, I was wondering if you could talk about what We Are Parable does to really draw people in to to sell these screenings as events, uh, whether it's marketing or or just the way you put the screening together.
3: Yeah, thanks. I think that's a really good question. I think I'm really glad that you've um, referred to our first event because when we created that event, uh, we had no idea that, this was gonna turn into a business. We really just wanna see one of our favorite films on the big screen. And then when myself and my co-founder and wife, Tiana Andrew started talking about the film and talking about the event, once we organized and worked out with a cinema, you know, when we were gonna do it, and how we were gonna do it, we thought, okay, look, there's something interesting here. We love this film so much. It's show people how much we love it. And let's try and include little bits of you know, a few cues, a few visual cues around the cinema to see um, if people get that. And then that idea just snowballed and we thought, okay, actually, why don't we try and bring the fictional world of Zamunda into a cinema? So to that end, we had arts and craftsmakers makers from all all over the diaspora with um, their, um, you know, their magazines, their health products, um, you know, clothing, all from different parts of Africa. We had dancers and drummers, um, we had rose bearers meeting people when they came into cinema. And it was all about creating an experience that really made you feel like you were being trans you you were being removed from the world of, you know, the local cinema and brought into the world of Zamunda. So you could actually enjoy the film more. It's something that elicits an emotional response from our from our um from our audience. And I think that is the key thing that really drives us, um, even when we think about back in 2013, the same thing drives us today. How can we elicit an emotional response from our audience um, that are, that's built on culturally relevant experiences? That's something that I think that's why people come out for um, nostalgic screenings. And we think that if we can add something that's a little bit novel, that's a little bit avant-garde and potentially not necessarily deemed as conventional for cinemas to do, then I think that's something that we're super interested in seeing how we can push the conventions of what it means to go to the cinema.
2: I mean, it's obviously a completely different film and a completely different atmosphere, but I just think back to a a midnight screening I went to of one of my my favorite childhood films, Mortal Kombat.
1: And it wasn't, it's an
2: excellent (laughs) film, but you have a guy there, one of the staff members is like dressed like Sub-Zero and they're playing the the, the theme song, which is the best theme song in movie history. And, And just though you have to put some effort and put some work in and not just, here's the movie.
3: But, you know, what? what's interesting about that is that I think there's something about the shared experience and there's something about being seen and almost some, you know, when you see someone else who gets the same references that you get, you're almost like, ah, yeah, you're one of us, you're part of a group, you're part of this kind of tribe who understands how much this film means to me. And as a result, I understand how much this film means to you. And now we've got this collective thing. We've got this connective thread between us. And now we can talk about our favourite moment in the film. And that's something that is truly so rare and so precious. And I think the more that we can create those connective threads in our audience, I think the, you know, the better cinema will become. By extension,
1: you are really creating community and you're fostering community between these audiences who like the same things and who probably have broader concerns in common as well. Do you find the same audiences returning to your events over and over? And if so, do you do other things to foster that community between individual events?
3: Yeah, we do have a very core following of, um, you know, of of audience members who come to everything that we do. And, you know, it's now got to a point where they see our name attached to a particular film. And it's like, I know this is going to be a good event. I know these guys are going to do something that's slightly different to what everyone else is doing. And I think that's a real, that's a real privileged position to be in and something that we don't take lightly. So when we do approach a project, we make sure that we are really trying to push the envelope where possible. I think, you know, I think you're absolutely right. In terms of trying to build communities, that's something that we definitely do. Um, And I think what's great about our core audience is that they'll go out and tell their friends and tell their peers and really become champions of our brand and talk about us to, you know, to the high heels. And, you know if there are people who are doing similar things, they'll say, oh, have you checked out these guys? Because they do this, and maybe you should collaborate with them. So, you know, we do have those people who have sort of ridden with us from, you know, the early days of 2013 and 2014, and now who come to everything and now, you know, talk about us to as many people as possible, which is, you know, like I said, it's a true blessing to have, um, you know, your real sort of diehard uh, audience that come out for everything. It's really, it's, it's yeah, it's truly a blessing
2: you said with that with that first uh, coming to America event you know it was almost intended as a one-off you didn't think of it as a yeah. business model what convinced you that creating events elaborate events around and celebrating uh, black cinema would be a viable business
3: I think what sparked us doing a second event after coming to America was the audience reaction you know we just had the idea of doing this one screening, we're gonna put everything we've got into it. You know, we're coming out of a bit of a personal, challenging time for us. Um, So we sort of put all of our energies into this screening and it showed when when people when audiences responded to it, it you know it showed how you know it showed how much they got the effort that we put into it and then we got asked you know when's the next one and we thought oh right we better think of another one so the next the, the, you know we thought of some next screenings like love and basketball where we um recreated the basketball court within our old boxing hall and we had the all american experience with cheerleaders and we started to think you know as we were starting to do these things we just really enjoyed it. We really just enjoyed working and bringing so much joy to people and people understanding the references and and being in a space, enjoying a film that we all grew up with is such a a monumentally proud moment, but also a a hugely fun moment for us. And I think it was only, I would say, probably around the 2016, 2017 era when we decided to um, curate a Spike Lee Film Festival. And, um, you know, by complete surprise to us, Spike Lee got in contact with us and said, hey, I'm going to be in London for a few days. Do you want to work on an event together? And that kind of led to us working with Spike Lee. I think that's when we really started to think of our organization of what we built as a business. And then we know we started looking at funding applications. We started thinking about consultancy and different strands of revenue within our business. So I think it was that, you know, initially the moment was about, the momentum came from us getting feedback from our audience. But then I think when we started to come up with more elaborate programming ability, then we saw the commercial opportunity. And I think that's what's really uh, taken us through to today.
2: That, that must have been a fun phone call to get. Like Spike Lee wants to come. <laughs> it
3: was actually, yeah, I say I always say phone call, but it was actually an email. So I remember, I was on on a phone call to someone else about another Spike Lee event that we were doing later on in the summer. And I I remember, I'll never forget my wife running up the stairs with her laptop in hand. And she showed me the email and and it was a really short, Spike's really short on emails. He's like, hey, this is Spike Lee. I'm gonna be in London. (laughs) Uh, He emailed you
2: directly, like it wasn't even like a manager or one of his people.
3: it It wasn't his manager, not his agent, it was him directly. Uh, oh my god! And I was like, "Oh, this is amazing! Thanks so much. Um, how can we get in contact with you?" And he's like, "Look, here's my number." And then, you know, about fifteen minutes later, <laughs> I'm on the phone to Spike Lee, um, which is just, yeah, one of those pinch yourself moments. Um, but yeah, that was that was an amazing time. It's something that I'm I'm just so proud of. We've got a picture hanging up in our in in our home um, of that of that day when Spike um, came to our event. And every now and again, I look at it and I think. Yeah, you know what, you could stop tomorrow and you know, that is that that's legacy. I mean, I'm you know, we're still we still speak to Spike every now and again and you know he's a he's a great he's been a great um advocate for what we do. And we we owe him a lot. I owe him a lot because I was a massive fan of his films growing up. He changed my life when I was watching his films back in the early nineties, and he's changed my life again in twenty seventeen by you know working with us and you know opening the door to so many opportunities that we're able to talk about today.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about the second phase of We Are Parable after that uh, intersection with Spike? Um, Actually, I'd love to know a little bit about, uh, you know, how you worked with him specifically to program that event, but then also, you know, did you see a broader or different audience response following that time?
3: I think um, just a bit of a clarification. So with the Spike is 60 uh, film festival, which is what it was called, um, we'd actually curated the program Program already, um, and he kind of came in once we had programmed the film. So we did screenings uh, for Mo no Better Blues, where we had a saxophonist play music in an Art Deco cinema. We had a block party in um, Brixton in South London to celebrate Do the Right Thing. We did Q and As um, talking about um, how hard it was for him to get his uh, to get Malcolm X made. Um, so these events were already programmed and scheduled, and he came in um, just before we were about to screen. She's got to have it. Um, and just said, hey, yeah, I want to work with you guys. The event itself was like a, you know, it, we did it within three days. So within uh, three days of him calling us to say he's going to be in London in the next few days, we had um, got a four. we secured a 400-seat cinema and we sold out the space and said, Spike going to be in person talking about his life in film. And, you know, that, that, that happened in three days. We had to move heaven and earth to make it happen. Um, but people were so appreciative of, you know, being able to meet him. He did a wonderful meet and greet afterwards, signing oh, members, nice. signing, uh, signing books, taking pictures. I mean, you know, the man is just su- he's such for the people, so much for the people. Um, he didn't just r- run off as soon as he did his bit. He really interacted with everyone that was there. And, you know, we still have people coming up to us now saying, you know, that was amazing that I never thought I'd meet Spike Lee and you guys did that. And um, so it was, you know, it was a real great moment. And that's, you know, a very, you know, high um, personal and you know the the proudest moment of my professional life, without a question of a doubt. Um, but to your second point, um, how we kind of saw the second phase of We Are Parable. I think after the spike event happened, um, and we you know we were able to create an event with him. I remember very clearly thinking in my mind as the night was winding to a close that I didn't want this to be the biggest thing we would ever do. I didn't want to be. To- I didn't want to be talking about this um, this moment in 10 years time saying, oh, you remember when we got Spike Lee down? And then, you know, for people to kind of counter you and say, well, what did you do after that? I really wanted to build on that momentum as much as possible. So as you might imagine, what happened when we um, worked with Spike, a number of organizations started getting in contact with us. They were like, oh, right. I kind of knew of the, you, you guys, but now I'm really listening because you managed to get Spike Lee here. So now I'm really listening. So we started getting invites to um, you know, screening invitations and you know networking events, and then we were having opportunities to work with different um, distributors. Um, but one of the one of the key relationships that we formed was with the British Film Institute or the BFI, and we worked with um, Gailin Gould, who um, now is the former head of events at the, at the BFI. We met her in 2017, a few days after the Spike is 60 um, event that we did with the man himself. And we just started talking and we, we realized that we had a number of shared interests and, um, you know, passions about film and, you know, nothing really came of it. We were just staying in conversation and staying in contact and really just, you know, knowing of each other and being supporters of each other's work. And then at the end of 2017, uh, Gaylene says, look, I've been speaking to Disney about Black Panther. Um, would you like to work on it? And, you know, <laughs> we were like... Oh,
2: no, no, I, I know no one just
3: that. that. <laughs> um, we were like, absolutely, that that is incredible. She was like, it's going to be the world's first public preview screening of the film. So before the States, you know, you're going to get, you know, we're going to get this film beforehand. We're possibly going to get some talent there. Um, would you like to work on it? So we were like, absolutely she was like, can you come up with some ideas? So myself and Tian kind of went away and we said, let's try and reimagine uh, the cinema foyer as a kingdom. So if T'Challa himself was to walk through the BFI South Bank in you know, South London, what would he want to see? Well, you know, he would want to see the best that the, um, the continent had to offer. So we had interior designers, we had jewelry makers, we had booksellers, we had uh, fashion uh, designers, music, art, um, you know, we had a comic book exhibition showing black characters throughout time from the Falcon to oh,
2: nice. you
3: know, all the way through to Black Panther, you know, all of these key, um, all these key, key black characters. Um, and we created this real immersive moment within the BFI South Bank. And that was a moment where people really kind of um, just saw themselves represented, not only in the film, but also the, um, the way that we put the experience together. I think it was just, it was a real best of the continent and what the content had to offer and putting put um, our artistry and our creativity at the forefront of everything that we did. Um, and we had a QA and a with Ryan Coogler, which was amazingly uh, received. We had over 800 people come and see the film. And, you know, that was a moment where, again, people say to us, you know, I remember your Black Panther event. It was incredible. You know, I know some people who went to the premiere and came to our event. They said the premiere premiere was good and it had all the fancy bells and whistles, but you guys really understood about the culture and how we would want to be represented. And the thing is, what's interesting about this event is that we never actually saw the film before we worked on the on the event, we just knew what the film would mean to our audience. We knew that we had to come correct. We knew that we could not get this wrong. Um, and it's because there was such a high anticipation for this film, it kind of propelled us forward to really put our best foot forward and create something that we knew our audiences were going to resonate with. And I think that's what we did. Um, so that was a real moment. And then from that, we started to... Um, Go for bigger pieces of funding and we start to go nationwide and do events all over the UK. Um, So that that was really the turning point, looking at um, what we did with Spike and then trying to look at the opportunities to do more.
2: To, to take it a bit more general, switch gears a bit, Yeah, uh, you know, in the United States, the exhibition community is, is overwhelmingly white. It's, oh. it's tough to get an exact number on, on how many theaters are owned by people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not, it's a very small number. Uh, what's the situation in the UK? Is it, is it something similar?
3: It's um, you know, it's, it's getting better. It's definitely getting better. I think, You know, there are a number of organisations who who reach a a similar demographic to us. And I think, you know, there's more that potentially we don't know about. But I think it's, I think distributors are starting to realise that, yes, they are acquiring these films, but actually do they have the tools and the the resources to be able to reach the audiences that these films need to be seen by? I think on their own, no, absolutely not. They need to reach out to organisations such as not not just us, but such as us and other organisations who are you know who are doing great work. And I think there is that slow realization. I think where the challenges lie is about as they always do with you know making sure that you're paying and you're valuing the service that these exhibitors bring. I think that's 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 still a challenge um, for something that we mm-hmm. move move forward towards. So yeah,
1: my understanding is that you recently did uh, a, a survey uh, kind of trying to gauge customer confidence on returning to the theater. Yes, yeah, that's right. Can you, and part of that was was looking at how different communities and people of different backgrounds are confident or not, based in part on how different communities are affected by something like COVID-19. Can you tell us a little bit about what you what you learned from that survey?
3: Yeah, I guess it didn't really change my approach, but I think what was important, just to give you a bit of context, I mean, we were having conversations with industry bodies about how cinemas are going to attract audiences to come back to their venues. And one part of the conversation that we felt was missing was, was how cinemas are going to attract Black audiences because what was happening over in the UK, and I think you, you guys might have... Experienced uh, a similar thing is that Black, Asian, and other ethnic groups were four times more likely to die from COVID nineteen than their white counterparts. Yeah. Now, it's a you,
2: similar similar thing here, yeah, with you're I, seeing yeah, communities I, that are minority communities because they're yeah. you know oftentimes more essential workers, more in
3: exactly you know more yeah. exposed. Hundred percent. But I think what was what also caught our eye was the fact that not only are Black people more susceptible to COVID they are also some of the most frequent visitors to cinemas in the UK. And that's, back, that's not just backed up by our research, that's backed up by the, the research of the British Film Institute. So we thought, look, there's a clear disconnect here. Like, we we need to be talking about how we're going to reach this specific and vulnerable audience. And I think the answers that we got back at the time were pretty uns- unsatisfactory. So we took it in our own hands. I think, you know, when this was happening, you know, you had the horrific death of George Floyd, which we, we all witnessed. Um, And, you know, Black Lives Matter protests happening all over the world and, you know, buoyed by that and feeling like, you know, there had to be something that we could do to make sure that, you you know, we were seen and represented in the right way. We felt that we couldn't just sit by and not find out more about our audience and how they, you know, how they feel about going back to cinema. So we got commissioned from the BFI to say, look, let's do this research and um a few weeks later we sent out a survey to 1100 people almost a fifth of them said that they wouldn't be going back to cinemas until 2021 another third of that audience said that they wouldn't they wouldn't they're not sure about when they're going to go back to cinemas so if you think about that that's almost 50% of a audience who are some of the most frequent visitors so commercially it doesn't make sense to ignore these you know the this 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 cohort of people so actually when you think about that you know from a commercial point of view you know it it, you know it's a a huge mistake to be making but actually from a moralistic point of view it's almost you know it's 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 unforgivable in my eyes i think it needs to be something that's addressed and i think what we've seen as a result of you know coming out with this research we've seen that you know our industry bodies are now thinking about how they can communicate the safeguarding principles that are needed for cinemas to open safely and to reassure audiences that they they are COVID safe venues, um, and that's that's come out of the direct uh, you know, response of our research. So I think what it's what it's taught me is to really question um, and really ask why something isn't happening. Um, I think. In terms of, am I surprised by the results? Not really. I think we wanted to do the survey just to reiterate and say, look, it's not just us saying it, it's our audience saying it. We need to make sure that we are protecting not only our most vulnerable, but our most frequently visited, um, you know, our most frequent visitors to cinema. We need to be protecting them. So the research didn't show me anything I I didn't already know, but I think what it did is show um, industry bodies what they needed to know.
2: After six months of of not being able to hold any in person events, yeah, earlier this month you had your first in person screening since shutdown of, of Sarah Gavron's Rocks. Congratulations! Thank you very much. Uh, so how, how a how did that go? Yeah. And B, how did the the data you collected that confirmed what you already thought? You know, how how did your findings kind of did it shift the way you? presented the event, marketed the event, you know, worked with the theater to make sure like that everything was ship shape in terms of safety and and adequately like conveying to, to the audience that it's okay. I mean, how, how did you, you know, incorporate those findings into your own first event back?
3: I think what we did was we we, we kind of announced the event. We, we worked with Attitude, the distributor, Uh, We were really excited about Rocks um, before the pandemic kicked in and it was a film that we knew we we wanted to go back with. Um, Now the cinema that we worked with is a lovely cinema in East London called The Rio um, and they were one of the first cinemas to reopen with COVID COVID guidelines Uh, and they were very stringent about how Um, safeguarding would work in their cinema. So we wanted to go back with a cinema who had prior knowledge of how this was working, had experience with interacting with audiences, making sure they were clear about how to do that and being very clear in the communications of how to keep audiences safe. Um, So we worked quite closely with them. We also were very careful to make sure that we replicated their information um, in a way that would um, be very succinct for our audience because I think they've got a really long couple of paragraphs on their site. And what we wanted to do was to make sure that if people were excited and t- to come back to cinema to watch a film with us, actually what we wanted to do is be responsible and not kind of contradict our uh, research by saying, Oh, hey, you just come to the cinema, it's going to be fine. We actually send out, send out a number of posts on social to say, if you're thinking about coming to our screening remember these things remember that you're going to be asked to do a temperature check we're going to ask you to buy your tickets in advance please don't come trying to buy a ticket we're going to ask you to pay with contactless card we're going to ask you to walk one way around the cinema it's going to be social distancing we're going to ask you to wait outside the cinema before um you know before the film starts we're going to ask you to wear a mask within the cinema so you know just reminding people of the key fundamental things that you'll need to do and why perhaps that might mean that the screening is going to start later than advertised because it still is a very much a new normal for people. So I think once audiences understood that and remembered that actually, yes, this is going to take longer because we are all about trying to keep you safe, I think it became a really uh, seamless experience and we're potentially going to be doing a few more things with the Rio over the next couple of months, um, because they have really nailed their, um, their their strategy, as a number of cinemas have already. Um, and I think when it came to audiences, you know, we were quite nervous to think, okay, well, how are audiences actually going to respond to our screenings? I and mean, we haven't done the screening for so long. I mean, you know, have has the climate of people coming out for cinema, you know, has it gone away? Actually the complete opposites happened. People were so willing to go back to cinemas, especially for this film. There's been so much hype about this film over the last couple of months that, you know, as we were the first UK preview of the film, people just, they couldn't wait to go to the cinema. And we sold out, I think, the day of of the of the of the film um so as a great result for us because we we just weren't sure. You know, we might we was thinking we'd get a smattering of people, but for it to sell out. Um, was just a very uh, sort of, you know, it, was, it felt like a vindicated decision to go back into cinemas, albeit safely.
2: So you think it, it helped that you were very upfront? I mean, th- there seems to be like a, a dichotomy or, or between what you said you don't want to do, which is just, mm. oh, it's fine, trust us, we know what we're doing, yeah, like, it's yeah. good. And then on the other side, you know, I think Russ and I, we both we both heard people say, you don't want to make your movie theater be like a hospital, being hospitable, yeah. mm. um, but you you want to find that middle ground um, where you're maybe even some people would say like over communicating.
3: Yeah, I think I think to you know to, to the to the untrained eye it would look like we are over communicating. However, I think what we're doing is showing the commitment to our audience, and I think we are, you know, we myself and TM we always say we are the audience. I mean, we don't work on films that we don't like. We don't do events. That we want to go to, you know, we very much feel like we are connected to the audience in that way, and I think you know we have concerns about going out and being in public places, you know, with the pandemic still raging on. Um, we've got young children, as a number of our um, audience members have, so we understand you know some of the concerns, and I think it would be remiss of us not to communicate um, and try and alleviate some of those concerns for our audience by you know, quote, unquote, over-communicating to them. Some people might think, all right, we get it, dudes. But, you know, that's fine. You know, you're always going to get some people who are going to be like, oh, really, these guys again? But you're going to be, you know, there's going to be people that are going to be like, actually, that's really helpful because now I know I was going to bring cash and now I won't. You know, I was going to, um, you know, ask if, you know, someone else from another household to come to screening, but now I won't. Like, so things like that, you know, it's just, it's giving people, that additional information which they can use or choose not to use. But I Mm -hmm. think for us, we feel a massive responsibility to keep our audiences safe and to provide them with the most transparent information as possible.
2: And the screening was well attended, so.
3: It was, it was. I mean, when I say sold out, what you have to remember is is that a 400-seat cinema is, you know, now a sold-out screening for that is 160 people. Um, It's Mm -hmm. not 400, so it's less than half. So you know, it's funny. We've got we did a um, we did a recap video of it, um, and I'm saying, hey, we have got a sold out screening, and you just pan to the to the room, and like, <laughs> the empty seats. So you're like, what is this guy thinking? But like, this is the He's like, No,
2: no, it's really sold out. It's, it's sold really out sold out. Sold
3: out. It has yeah, exactly. And it's um, you know, really, it's a new it's a new uh, kind of feeling for us to be like, okay, we can't see seas of heads looking back at us. We can just see like loads of gaps of empty seats. But, you know, that is, that is essentially the world we, we now occupy. Um, and, um, yeah, that's how we work.
1: I want to thank Anthony Andrews from We Are Parable uh, once again for joining us. Uh, you can get more information at weareparable.com. And as always, uh, I want to thank Rebecca Polly and Sean Robbins uh, for providing their insights and analysis and information. And finally, if you can take a look at the box office podcast survey, we would love to hear more of what you would like from the podcast. It'll just take a few seconds. Uh, you can find the link to the survey in this episode's description, or you can find it at our website at boxofficepro.com podcast. The Box Office Podcast is produced by recordeditpodcast.com. This episode was written and outlined by Rebecca Pauley and narrated by Rebecca, Sean, and me, Russ Fisher. We'll be back next week with further exploration of the exhibition space and box office reporting and analysis. Please join us then. Thank you.